Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here today with Yashar Tolga Chora and Sovinar Derderian. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Tolga is a postdoctoral fellow at the Armenian Studies Program and History Department of the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Sovinar is a PhD candidate in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at the University of Michigan as well. Today, we'll be discussing historical approaches to the eastern regions of Ottoman Anatolia, basing our conversation on their recent edited volume, The Ottoman East in the 19th Century, Societies, Identities, and Politics, published by I.B. Torres earlier this year. They produced the book with fellow co-editor Ali Sipahi, a recent graduate of the University of Michigan in History and Anthropology and a member of the Faculty of Social Sciences at Özyen University in Istanbul. The volume consists of four sections covering topics including trans-regional connectivity, the fluidity of identities and loyalties, state and local politics, and the social history of space. To start our conversation, I'd like to ask you two about your choices of time, place, and terminology. Your book focuses on a region that roughly corresponds with what is now the eastern half of the Turkish Republic. So what do you mean when you say the Ottoman East? Why did you decide on that phrase? And why the 19th century in particular? The, the choice of the name place emanates from the fact that this region is named with different toponyms. And we wanted to come up with one that would be representative of the Ottoman Empire rather than any national affiliation. Hmm. Uh, having said that, we have recognized in the book toponyms that were used in the 19th century by inhabitants of the Ottoman Empire. But it was important for us to include Ottoman because we wanted to study this region as part of the Ottoman Empire. As opposed to, say, part of a national history? You guys right. talk about that a bit in your introduction as one of the interventions you'd like the volume as a whole to make. Mm -hmm. So... This region has been formerly studied as part of Armenian history and therefore as Western Armenia. Mm -hmm. And a, a few works have been done on Kurds in this region. So that has taken another national mm. perspective of the region. So this project was more about integrating the region within the Ottoman Empire. Is there a reason you decided on the 19th century? Part of it is, I guess, because of... Us, what we work on, Ali, Tolga, and I, uh, we all work on the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But part of it is um, because of the new generation of scholars, which is the reason why we have come up with this book. And it seems that the trend has been that 19th century is in vogue uh, in certainly. our generation. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Um, so that's the main reason why, yeah. And I can also add that since that territory, which corresponds to Western Armenia, Northern Kurdistan, Eastern Turkey. Those histories take the 19th century as a turning point in terms of their national and nationalist histories and historiographies. So I think we also want to bring that or challenge that historiography from that perspective and try to show that we will be also working on the 19th century, but there are different approaches to the region, hmm. which is also, I think, related to the or theme of or attempt of writing a shared history of the peoples on the region. So just bouncing off of that, what you were just talking about of constructing a shared history, bringing sort of different strands of the historiography that were once separated. 
sort of back into conversation with one another. Uh, I I think I mean in the introduction it's great. You you open the introduction by pointing out that the Ottoman East is is the black hole of Ottoman history, writing that hardly any region of the Ottoman world has been so conspicuously ignored. Now, you posit a few reasons for this. Some are political, some are intellectual, some are logistical. I was wondering if you could just talk about and unpack some of these issues, either from your personal experience or what you've observed in the field of studying the Ottoman East more broadly, and how you've seen the study of the Ottoman East sort of develop and even come to address or overcome some of these obstacles in recent years. You're right. I, we are very clear to the as to the political reasons why this um, region has been ignored in Ottoman historiography. Having said that, I want to point out that it hasn't been much different in Armenian historiography either, despite the fact that this region represents a historically national national past of Armenians the agency of people who lived in that region is largely ignored in, in Armenian historiography. But in terms of changes that are happening in the field, I think more and more scholars who study Armenians are trying to do it within the context of either Ottoman or Turkish Republican history. And I think it, this book is one of the representations of that. Hmm. So you talk about sort of different lenses. One of them, the national lens, which we've talked about, how studying this region as a facet of simply Kurdish studies or simply Armenian studies or simply Ottoman or Turkish studies, that national lens has sort of prevented a history that can look at the region as a whole and the interactions and coeval existence of many groups of people in this region as opposed to focusing on one particular community. You also talk about state or capitalist lenses as approaches that have also you know, left this this region sort of out of the bigger picture of Ottoman history, say, compared to Cairo or Beirut or these port cities where people studying capitalism have sort of picked up these port cities and sort of brought what may have otherwise been seen as peripheries into the center, whereas the East has been left out. You talk about this a bit in the introduction. I was wondering, do you see that changing in recent years? In terms of the, the region being brought back into Ottoman history, I think our book is a demonstration that that <laughs> is changing. And uh, I think we will see many, many more works coming out in the next few years. But I want to say something about the writing a history that connects the different inter-ethnic groups. I think this is a challenge that we faced mm. um, in our book. And it's still a challenge that we have to deal with because... Well, one, more and more of us are using multiple languages while studying the region, so that helps in finding connections. But in general, we have archives that are very separate. And we also have a century that was increasingly rigidifying ethno-confessional identities. Are you referring to the 20th century? The 19th, 19th century. 19th. So we need to recognize uh, those processes and at the same time though see how we can connect the histories of the dif different ethnic groups within the region and i think i may add something else especially related to the how the ottoman history is being produced and may, this may also answer your question about like whether there will be more products in the coming years or uh, effects of such approaches and i think one of the goals that we had in mind when we were preparing this 
we are trying to reimagine the Ottoman history, how it is produced, and we are trying to incorporate not only the region as a region itself, but the rethink and reimagine the Ottoman history and integrate the histories of these peoples who were living in the region into the Ottoman history and rewrite it from a different perspective. And this will be also this will challenge Istanbul-centric historiography, state-centric historiography, and as you mentioned, like the city-centered more of a capitalist approach to the history of region and modernization, which they, as they go, went hand in hand. So I think the focus on a different region with different ethnicities who were not studied, if not at all, but not very well, or not as a part of a broader re- broader empire, I think we are also aiming to challenge the existing historiographies from that perspective as well. Since we're emphasizing the region of the Ottomanist, I want to bring in another issue and say that we we're also careful in our book not to turn this into another area studies and not to homogenize the region mm, what do you as mean one unit. So we do recognize the the problems that may arise by turning this into a region because processes that were happening in Harput may not have been the same as in Van, let's say. And and we shouldn't make generalizations mm-hmm. based on just one province and one event in a particular place should not reflect on the entire Ottoman Eastern provinces. And different articles have challenged this approach in our book. This area studies approach. Right. So I think we can say that the choice of the region is more political. Right. Uh, um, Because it's a region that's that's often politically taboo even today in Turkey, right? Right. It's not easy to talk about histories of Armenians or even the present existence of Kurds. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. So another question I have for you two is about this framework of colonial Ottomanism or internal colonialism. I've seen this in the work of Donald Bloxham or Thomas Kuhn and others. Um, They describe the Ottoman state as a sort of colonial power over you know whatever periphery they happen to be talking about. Bloxham talks about Anatolia, Kuhn talks about Yemen. I was wondering to what extent you two saw colonialism as a useful theoretical approach for studying the Ottoman East. Can we see this region as a space colonized by the imperial center, or is there something different going on here? I think we should think about when or when we answer that question, we should first think about the autonomy of those regions before centralization because colonization took place in the 19th century as a part of the modernization and the centralization of the state. So you're talking about the sort of in- incorporation of these autonomous exactly. areas in the, mm-hmm. in the mid-1800s. And whether, but in order to, to be able to talk about colonization, we have to accept those places as at least as autonomous so that they will be incorporated through colonization or other means of uh, power. So I am not so sure about that, at least in our book, that we didn't use that word because we thought it will not help us in the, the main, help us in elaborating the main issue that we are trying to talk about in the book, that is the, trying to write a shared history. Sure. And trying to move away from the state history. as the central Exactly. Actor. That's the second point. And if we talk about what was happening there in terms of colonization, then we will be very close to the ideas of autonomous histories that were not connected to each with each other on the one hand and on the, on the other hand we have to address the power of state 
and that power of state will be probably seen as something coming from the center and then we will be back into the certain ideas that we really didn't want to address in the book or approach them in different ways. I think that's a better way to put it. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, here with Tolga Chora and Sovinar Derderian, who, along with Ali Sipahi, published and edited a volume earlier this year called The Ottoman East in the 19th Century. So far, we've spoken about ideas of the Ottoman East and some approaches to studying the region. And now I'd like to turn to one of the volume's sections titled Fluid Loyalties and Identities. Sovinar, your chapter is part of this section uh, titled Shaping Subjectivities and Contesting Power Through the Image of Kurds, you examine Armenian newspapers published in the Ottoman East during the 1860s. If I read you correctly, I see you intervening in a scholarship that has been deeply invested in national categories, like in this case, Kurd and Armenian. But rather than just adopting these categories, your work actually questions how they came to be coherent political concepts in the first place, uh, looking at the publishing that was going on and the ways that these images of Kurd and Armenian were sort of contrasted with each other. Can you talk a little bit about your intervention and how you came to it? Sure. So the representation of Kurds in both Armenian texts and the texts of Western travelers, and right now I particularly have in, have in mind James Bryce's work of the mid-19th century, provide uh, an image of Kurds as a savage people. But yet I've come across interactions between Kurds and Armenians, and they lived together. So I've been much interested in understanding how they lived together, <laughs> but still not ignoring the fact that, of course, there were conflicts and different relations between the two ethno-confessional groups. But what I was interested in this specific study was what what was achieved by such a representation of Kurds in Just backward, barbaric, savage, whatever, all these sort of images of uncivilized right, unlawful. What does that achieve? For the for a specific bishop named Garik in Cervantians and his periodical that is published in Mush in, in the eighteen sixties. And this mm. this publisher, he's coming from Istanbul. He's a bishop assigned from the center who's assigned out to this region. So he's a he's actually a native of Van. And yes, he's assigned to Mush within a project of bringing the so the Armenian constitution that was adopted uh, in 1860 and then readopted in 1863 in Istanbul, and which should be interpreted as part of the Tanzimat reforms and the centralization of the state. So what I see Servantian's doing is the cultural project of bringing the state into the provinces. Mm -hmm. And what I'm examining is how Kurds and the image of Kurds are used in this project. As sort of a foil. Right. Uh, a foil to what the subjects should be like. And, and he's only interested in Armenian subjects of the Ottoman Empire. So Kurds yeah. are sort of the, the the example of what you shouldn't be if you're Armenian. Right, the disloyal subjects of the Ottoman Empire who are inhibiting the, the progress that they talk a lot about. They, as in this particular bishop and other bishops of his generation, 
so yes, the, the image of the coat is used as a foil, uh, but then in the same text we find places where the image of the Kurd is reflected on Armenians, Armenians who are not fitting in the kind of subject that they that they want to produce. That's state approved subject, sort of, so so to speak. State and church approved. State so, and church, yeah. which is also a blurry line. We don't have to go into that now. Right. <laughs> um, huh. So you talk a bit about shared practices uh, in your article and about how you know there are mm-hmm. even though the the, the church or state forces may be interested in sort of clearly legible Kurds and Armenians. You know, Kurds do this, Armenians do that. Armenians are like this, Kurds are like that. They run into some tension when they get to the actual practices of people in the region Mm -hmm. who I remember reading accusations of worshiping water like a Kurd. A good Armenian won't do that. Or worshiping a tree like a Kurd. A good Armenian wouldn't do that. Wanting to to practice polygamy. A good Armenian wouldn't do that. So mm-hmm. do you find a lot of examples of these sort of shared practices in your work as you go through the archive? Um, yes and no. So you, ha- I have to dig in deep <laughs> huh. into the archive in order to look for uh, information about everyday life. Of course, yeah. Which is where we come across more into the interactions and shared practices. But often what happens in the Armenian archival text is that such practices are represented as negative practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is that only contemporary or do you see that also even in you know, later work, historians maybe from the early 20th century looking back on this region, do you also see this reflected in the historiography? Well, what, what's, what has shocked me in the historiography is the ability to write the history of Armenians by completely ignoring Kurds uh-huh. of Armenians in that region. That the uh, shared practices just or, aren't even, they're non, non-existent, they're just absent. Right, or even, uh, I mean, the, there have been survey histories of Armenians written that include Ottoman Armenian history that hardly ever, you hardly ever will come across Kurds, mm. uh, except sometimes, and or, uh, depending which work you're looking at, as the um, uh, the oppressor of Armenia. Savage, backward, oppressor, something right. like that. Right. Huh. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit to the topic of Western missionaries in the Ottoman East. This is sort of a greedy shift because this relates to my own work. Tolga, you, the chapter that you wrote, Localizing Missionary Activities, tells a very interesting story about uh, this, a certain Simeon Davitian, an Armenian in Chinus, outside of Erzurum, who uh, in the mid-1800s began to form a sort of native missionary movement, one that wasn't drawing on, say, American or German Protestantism, but on an anti-feudal Christian sect that had been ascendant in the region in the 9th to 11th centuries, the Paulician Tondorakian movement. So recent works in Middle East history have been debating, you know, the the role of missionaries in the region, were they foreign enlighteners, were they colonizers, were they some combination thereof? But I saw in your article an interesting uh, a new dimension of uh, for this discussion, which is questioning whether missionaries should be considered foreign at all. Can you talk a bit about your intervention or uh, how you came to it and perhaps how it relates to missionary encounters elsewhere in the empire? Thank you. 
while I was thinking about writing that piece, I had some other goals in my mind, and one of them, as you mentioned, about how should we approach the history of missionaries. I didn't particularly address the topic of whether they should be considered local, especially the Western, German, or American British missionaries should be considered as local or not. But my focus was more on how they interact with the local people. Because I think there are two main strengths in the scholarship on the missionaries. One is like the, we see them as westernizers coming to the region, bringing this Western modernity, changing it as much as they can. And the other one is how did the imperial state reacted to those missionary activities, especially in the period of uh, Abdul Hamid II. So there is no real sense of what the people, the people's interaction with the missionaries and other sort of forces. So I wanted to take them as the, both the missionaries and the local people and the interaction between them as a field in which different kinds of power relations took place. And I think it was also related to our bigger goal of addressing or recovering the voices of the ordinary people and the local people in the Ottoman East. And this is how I came to that topic. And so this this character, Simeon Davitian, he's he's evangelizing in that, you know, he is an Armenian guy in outside of Erzurum who's trying to build a movement that is protesting actions of the church and certain theologies, whatever. But he's he distinguishes himself from the American missionaries, right? Exactly. So he was the, what they call in the missionary language is a native pastor, one of the native assistants or helpers. So he was a native pastor at the period, which is quite early in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. Their number was not much. So they, But when you read the missionary accounts, although this is one of the other things. So at one level, when I was talking about the ordinary people in the village, how do they interact with the missionaries? How do they how they use their language, missionary language, to create an opposition to their landlord? I'm very much interested in social history and uh, apostolic landlord through the language of Protestantism on the one level. And on the other level, we have this uh, Simon Davidian, a native uh, preacher or pastor, who was trying to bring his, his own agency into the whole missionary movement and, as you said, like distinguish himself from the Western missionaries. And I have his a diary as my source, which was published in a Hushamadian on Hunas. Hushamadian just being the, the memory book, book of, yes. of, the, of the region. And interestingly enough, the person who published the book was a descendant of the landlord, of the, uh, the landowner, the greatest landlord, the Melikans of Hunas and where this whole story was taking place. So there was lots of information on the landowner as well. But what I was trying to do is like to put these different agencies and to show that at the first place, to show the multiplicity of agencies, and which we do not usually consider. And there are different levels, as I said, the ordinary people, the village folk. We have a native pastor who attains some power through the, his relations with the missionaries, and an Armenian landlord who, as a group, Armenian landlords, we usually do not consider as part of important actors in the Ottoman East when we focus on the Muslim, Turkish, and Kurdish uh, landlords. So, hmm. so you're bringing a lot of players in the into the story that you can't even see elsewhere if you're looking at I don't know missionaries in Egypt or Lebanon or wherever. The Ottoman East gives you sort of a a different cast of characters and a different arrangement of power and actors that sort of play out in different ways. And I want to make an also intervention to the broader history of, as I said, the Western missionaries, 
through showing that they were also using the local resources. It was not always what they were bringing in Western, either in terms of religion, either in terms of technology, as at least called them modernity. Modernity. You but, mean in that they were like sort of appropriating? They tried to. The Western missionaries would try to appropriate this Polishian Tondarakian exactly. movement. They would try to appropriate it as part of no Protestantism has been here for for centuries. We're just coming to reinvent. You know, they try to claim it as in their own sort of lineage. Yes, and I think that took some uh, roots in the Armenian culture and the uh, discussions as well, because as late as, late as early 20th century, famous Dr. Nazaret Bagavarian, who was a parliamentarian from uh, Sivas region and was killed during the genocide, he also had a work on the origins of Protestantism in Anatolia, particularly pointing out the importance of the Paulician movement. So I think that's also a strength and maybe a research agenda uh, for future, that uh, how these Western movements had, as you said, like appropriated the locals and local culture and other things for their movements and incorporated them. And through that incorporation, certain things are lost. And I tried to show that one of the things was a native form of anti-church or anti-apostolic church movement. And I think that stress has been lost because it was very well integrated into the Protestant missionary movement. Hmm. So, as someone else who studies the Ottoman East, I often find myself steeped in work that focuses on other regions of the empire. You know, I I have to read a lot about Western Anatolia and the Balkans and the Arab world because that's where a lot of the secondary literature has been produced if I want to look at Ottoman history writ large. Now that this volume is beginning to sort of fill the, the black hole in Ottoman history that you mentioned earlier. I was wondering if there are any specific themes, approaches, methods, ideas, whatever, that you think that this book or other work on the Ottoman East could offer to those who study other Ottoman realms. You know, now that, you know, we've spent a lot of time uh, reading the histories of other regions of the Ottoman Empire and thinking about the parallels and helping us expand our ways of thinking about the Ottoman East. Are there any particular things about the Ottoman East that you think would be good for those who study not just the Ottoman Empire, but also Transcaucasus, Iran, or broader histories? It's hard to make claims before it's the book is actually... I am actually. asking you to speculate. <laughs> but I think it will help. And I, I, I have benefited a lot from studies on the Balkans and on the Levant, especially. So, I I I do hope what when it comes to the land problem, mm -hmm. I I really do wish that there would be more communication, the land problem of the nineteenth century, more communication between what uh, studies that have been done on the Levant, absolutely uh, on the Balkans, and bring it into conversation of what was happening in the eastern borderland. Uh, provinces because the way the land problem has been understood in the east is mostly as a conflict between um, Kurds and Armenians or the state and Armenians right and and of course that was that is something to be looked at but more and more studies are coming out that are showing different aspects of it right um, how about the so land land the topic of land and the land reform in the 19th century, definitely. I feel like I've read a lot of literature that can tell me a lot about cases in Western Anatolia, a lot of great work in like Northern Jordan and Syria I've seen as well. In the Balkans, this stuff exists. And then 
once you get used to Vadana, it gets a little... There were Kurds and Armenians and they fought, you know, as usually... Or there was the state and it tried to tame all of these uh, lawless people. How about in looking at the questions of, you know, in the Levant, the the word is usually sectarianism mm -hmm. when they talk about conflicts among communities. Do you see the Ottoman East playing a role in in our ways of thinking about sectarianism or competing nationalisms or depending on the where you are and how you want to say it? Is there something that, start, that your approach to the mm -hmm. Ottoman East can help us uh, help us with when we look elsewhere in the empire? Well, I... I have benefited a lot from Usama Magdisi's work on sectarianism, and I think um, I can speak of my work as trying to see the role of local Armenians in perpetuating the rigidification of ethno-confessional groups rather than just seeing the agency of Western powers and the state in the visions that the ethnic sectarian religious divisions that became increasingly important by the end of the 19th century. So I hope that, at least in my case, to the, uh, to the example of Armenian agents in, uh, and actors in the, in the eastern provinces, uh, so local actors, how they contributed to a, you can call it a project of colonization, a, or of, of identity divisions that were created, that were... Um, not created as a very strong word, but rejudified in this period. Yeah, I would agree with uh, what I agree with uh, what Sovinar said. I think that's the, one of the things that we may contribute or volume can contribute is this: how these uh, rejudification process, <laughs> if we can talk about the process, took place, and how it is related to the other places in the empire. Whether we if see if we see a kind of a contemporaneity between these processes in different parts of the empire, I think it can also can tell us something about the, the whole history of the empire. And I think that might be a really interesting thing to work on in the, both in the Balkans and what we call as the Ottoman East and the Levant. Right. I think that might be a, an interesting topic to work on later. I wanted to ask you both about your coming to the Ottoman East as a field of study. Were there particular works or developments in other fields of Ottoman history or history more broadly that were important for you as you're, you developed your approaches to coming to the Ottoman East or thinking about the Ottoman East as, as a sort of geography of focus for your work? Well, I think for all of us, Janet Klein's work on, 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 on the Kurdish tribes and their role in specifically the Hamidian era Definitely. played a, a big role and therefore we're very happy that she could write the epilogue of our uh, of our book. So I think I think for many of us when we started she, hers was the only book in English at least that spoke of this region in the context of Ottoman history. Mm. And since since we started our PhD 7 8 years ago so much literature has been produced that can relate to the Ottoman Eastern provinces. Mm. And I think also that's what has been going on in the Ottoman historiography, as Sovinar mentioned, that uh, lots of things has been changing. And one of the issues also related to Janet Klein's book is the borderlands and the margins. And we also want to examine that region as like a borderland region, which not only in the Ottoman studies, but the a topic that has been worked on in other historiographies, like how the empires function in their borderlands. Mm -hmm. 
and where there's a borderland, there's a spaces where different peoples and cultures, languages interact with each other, and also through which we can also address the issues of transnationalism, relations with the other side of the border, and etc. So, I think the development in the borderland studies, if we can put it that way, I don't know how good it is to say it, but uh, I think it has been an important development, and we benefited from uh, at least ideology. I mean, in terms of our thinking about the conceptualizing the Ottomanese. All right. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. And for those of you who would like to find out more, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Tolgi Tsovinar and Ali's book, The Ottoman East in the 19th Century, published by IB Tourist Press. I also encourage you to visit us online at our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find a bibliography, leave comments, and ask questions about the topics we've covered. You can also join us on Facebook, where you can stay in touch with our community of over 20,000 listeners and follow news about upcoming series and episodes. That's all for our conversation today. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, take care. Katibin Katibin